will manifest itself in truth and in goodness. Local. The challenges that we're facing in our generation, we just need the gospel. I mean, every every culture, every generation just needs to know how the gospel applies. Engaging. We don't bring any life at all to the church. The church is, is the life. It gives us the life. Live. The reality is, He is all things beautiful, capital B. And so anything that is authentically beautiful draws us, even if we don't realize it, to God. Welcome, everyone, to Real Presence Live. My name is Tim Moser, along with my co-host, Dr. Ryan Sappo. Nice. Good to have you here, Dr. Great, Ryan. Great to be here. Great yeah. to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Dr. Ryan is our all-time favorite optometrist for our son, Romeo. He loves Dr. <laughs> Ryan. Do I get to go see Dr. Ryan? Romeo and I are best buds. That is for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. Well, it seems like fall weather is upon us here. It yeah, seems it, it that, really is. Uh, you know, It turned from 90 degrees to 50 in short order, right, it, to frost. It didn't take long. It didn't exactly. take long. But I, I do enjoy this time of year because, you know, as, as Christians, we're seasonal people, and it's nice to be able to see all the seasons I totally year agree. round. I so totally agree. It's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful time of year, that's yep. for sure. I'm going to miss golfing, but yeah. I, 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 definitely, uh, I definitely enjoy this weather. You betcha. Exactly. Well, we're coming at you from the Fargo station here today, between the railroad tracks and the cathedral downtown Fargo. And as a lot of our listeners probably know, we have uh, dozens of pilgrims mm-hmm. and priests, three, three priests right here from the Fargo diocese. Uh, over in Israel. You've probably heard about that, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get out. Uh, they're, they're safe so far, but things are a little dicey. So we uh, are going to offer up our prayer uh, mainly for them today. So let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this this opportunity to, to share your truth. Lord, we lift up to you our brothers and sisters over there in the Holy Land, Everyone over there in Israel and in that area, but especially from our own area, we pray for protection. We pray for guidance. We pray that you would have a path, a way for them to get home safely, Lord. Bring them back to us soon. And just just guide all this, Lord, please. And of course, also, Lord, please just let there be peace in the Middle East and around the world. So we lift up these prayers and those of our guests, too, as we pray for the intercession of our Blessed Mother, as we pray together. Hail Mary, full, full of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, Tim Moser coming at you here from the Fargo studio, along with... Dr. Ryan from Lumen Vision. Yeah, that's awesome, Dr. Ryan. Well, hey... Our first guest today is uh, Mr. Patrick Flynn. Patrick, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. Oh, he called us gentlemen. Look wow. at that. He doesn't know us that well, does he? Distinguished gentlemen. <laughs> yes. yes. High honors indeed, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Patrick, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a, a philosopher and writer living in southeastern Wisconsin with my wonderful wife, Christine. We have five children. I focus a lot in the area of, of metaphysics and philosophy of God, so I'm really interested in those big-ticket questions of life. You know, what is fundamental reality? You know, what is human nature? What are we? What are we for? These questions have always sort of haunted me uh, from a very young age, and for many years I was, you know, pretty strongly in the atheistic or naturalistic uh, philosophical camp or persuasion, and it was actually a, a going deeper into philosophy— that ultimately caused me to reconsider the existence of God and 
eventually even opened me up to the possibility of revealed religion, and so here I am now as a fellow Catholic. Patrick, you are the author of a book called The Best Argument for God, and we want to know a lot about the book today, so we're going to ask you lots of questions. Um, uh, we're, we're wondering who the intended audience is and what was the inspiration, what was the story behind uh, writing it? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. In fact, uh, the book is a bit self-indulgent because I really thought of the intended audience as me, as in my former mm. self. Anybody who was seriously interested in philosophy interested in the big questions of life, but perhaps deeply confused by them, perhaps taken down a, a wrong or anti-religious, anti-theistic path, but was still sincerely open, sincerely open to hearing a rational case for the existence of God, for classical theism, why the theistic worldview really is the more rationally compelling, more, more coherent philosophical perspective. So at, at points it's a challenging book, uh, but I did my best to make it accessible. I wanted to distill what I believe is the best case for the existence of God without diluting any of it. So as long as somebody is really interested in the philosophical case for God, they're, they're willing to do a little bit of intellectual heavy lifting, I think they're going to get a lot out of this book. We're talking with Patrick Flynn, author of The Best Argument for God. Patrick, as you're talking here, and, and you kind of alluded to it, but maybe you could expand on a little more. It sounds like you said, I wrote this kind of like for me, right? And so there must be at least your personal experience, even if you didn't relate it in the book. It's not just an academic exercise, right? You're kind of writing from the heart saying, hey, you know, this is really affecting me. It, was that the case? And if so, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's something I tried to be very careful about. And by that, I mean, I wanted to show a care for the skeptic. Sometimes I see in, in certainly apologetic circles, there's a lot of just, hey, we're winners, you guys are losers, and, and here's why. <laughs> And that, that's often really off-putting. I know it was off-putting for me, um, but there's a lot of people out there, you know, that, that are sincere seekers. They might be of a skeptical bent, but I would argue they just, they just haven't been exposed to the rich tradition of Catholic philosophical thought that has serious intellectual muscle. And I believe that if you show sufficient care and patience for people uh, like that in that situation, which I think I was one of those people— they will be very receptive to the philosophical case. So yes, it very much does come from the from my past and a place of care and concern. But at the end of the day, it is a philosophy book. It's not a memoir. So I'm there just venturing what I think are the best arguments and rebutting what I think are the best objections. You know, I think that's so important that, that you talk about, you know, treating people with, you know, care, concern, and respect. I mean, that, that's, that's so good because the number one thing we want when you finish a conversation with someone is this say, this person cares about me, right? You know, it's not just about there. There's an airtight argument. Take that. You know, boom, it'll salvo done. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I've been, you know, I've been teaching confirmation and and working with uh, you know, teenagers and stuff for a little bit now too. And I realize this is really an approach that we need to take with them. Uh, you know, I've had a number of of students uh, that came in very skeptical, almost angry, and you know, our sort of initial response is to maybe try and just batter them with different arguments or reasons or tell them that they're just totally wrong, and, and that's, just, that's just often ineffective on a psychological level. You know, people want to be heard. They want to, they want to see that their position is understood, that their objections are actually taking, taken seriously. So I try to reflect that attitude in the book. I do try to trot out what I think the best objections are against the theistic worldview, try to, try to show that I really do understand them. I understand what it's like to be a skeptic. I understand what it's like to be a naturalist, because I was one, and then systematically and, and patiently give what I think is, is the best and ultimately convincing response. 
We're on Real Presence Live with Patrick Flynn, the author of The Best Argument for God. And Patrick, we 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 have plenty of time to talk through this over the next segment or two. And I, I, I wanna I wanna unpack this a little more with you. It but if I were if I were looking at this and obviously I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian, but I I, I just wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't know like how do you begin like the logic in this book, like where does this begin? How do you how do you make an argument for the existence of God? Um, if you could, if you could talk to little old me for a little bit, what would you? Where would you start? And like, how would you? How would you get this going? Yeah, I, well, the book itself divides into two philosophical approaches for the existence of God. So, so often, I just like to explain the different ways that philosophers have thought about God and make it clear to people that this is something that philosophers have thought about very mm-hmm. seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, both in ancient times and modern times, the God debate is very much alive, especially in academia. You have this very rich field of philosophy religion where there's a lot of really smart people arguing for the existence of God, and people are sometimes surprised, but also interested to hear that most philosophers' religion actually are theists. They do believe in God, and they skew theistic. So somebody, if somebody comes into the field, they're actually more likely to come out uh, believers in God. And that's that's an interesting data point, because we're often told to trust the experts, right? This is sort of the cliche of the day. Well, if you go to the field where there are the most relevant experts concerning the question of the existence of God, most of them say, yes, God exists, right? <laughs> Something that he can be... Now, that doesn't mean that all philosophers fall uh, on the theistic side, but when you, dial, when you focus in on the most relevant philosophers, the one that thinks most deeply about this question they do tend to skew towards theism quite significantly. So the, yeah, how does the logic of it work? Well, there's two different approaches that I explore in the book. One is a more traditional approach, and the way this works uh, is you'll, you'll find this approach in thinkers like Aristotle, Plato, and Thomas Aquinas. They start by just sort of carving reality at its joints, trying to figure out the kind of general structure of the world, how to explain certain very common-sense features of reality, things like change, or endurance over time, how do, how do things remain the same thing even though their various features change, right? And they come up with different explanatory principles for, for making sense of this. Some of them are a little bit uh, technical, but I walk through them you know, patiently in the book. Things like uh, form and matter, or substance and attribute, essence and existence. And then ultimately what these philosophers do is to say, hey, to make sense of this entire system, which we need to make sense of the most common sense features of the world, change, uh, compositeness, the fact that things are, are made of parts, we actually have to trace back to something that is like totally and completely different from any of these things. So the logic of the argument often works like this, that if we think that change is real to explain that, we have to get back to something that is fundamentally unchanging. If we think that there are things that are composite, that are made of parts, we have to get back to something that is fundamentally simple. Or if we think that there are things that are contingent, that exist but don't have to exist, their essence doesn't guarantee their inclusion in reality, we have to get back to something whose essence just is to be, just is pure existence as such. And then what these philosophers do is they undertake a deep conceptual analysis of what sort of reality that could possibly be, and after some deep, sustained thought, really all of the traditional divine attributes tumble out of that. So that's one of the philosophical approaches to God. You start with a common sense feature of reality, like change or contingency or compositeness, and then you search out its necessary conditions, and and the result is really the God of classical theism, this immutable, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, purely actual reality whose essence just is existence. That's, That's very much a Thomas Aquinas type of route. A little bit technical, but I think ultimately very persuasive once you engage it and understand it. The other route, uh, which is a little bit more modern, is this idea of worldview comparison. 
And what philosophers do here is they sort of craft a philosophical worldview. And a worldview is just sort of a philosophical big picture of everything. That's the best way to understand it. And then what they will do is they'll go out and test their hypothesis against rivals. So you might have a, a theistic worldview, a classical theistic one, that posits uh, a principle of absolute perfection as, at, at, at fundamental reality, namely God. Or you might have a naturalistic worldview, which says that whatever else fundamental re- reality is, it's, it's, it's just indifferent, right? It's not an intentional-minded entity. It's not a, a, an entity of supreme value or anything like that. And then what you do is you go out and compare hypotheses, and you see which, which hypothesis better predicts or anticipates all those features of the world that we think a worldview should be able to explain well. Features like contingency or the moral dimension or the conscious dimension or stability and order. And the way that this uh, approach works is it's sort of an evidential comparison game. We're just kind of collecting evidence that supports one hypothesis over another. So I use both of these methodologies in the book. I actually blend them. Uh, but the whole second half of the book is just looking at all those features of the world from contingency to conscious uh, to morality and making the case that all these features are far better explained by the theistic hypothesis or the theistic worldview than the naturalistic one. So, sorry, a lot of words there. I hope some of them made sense. Oh, super helpful. Thank you. Yeah, we're talking with Patrick Flynn uh, his book, The Best Arguments for God. As you're talking, Patrick, I can't help but think of St. John Paul II, you know, who was a Thomist, right? but also understood that our culture is a personalistic one, right? It's experiential. And so his point of entry, right, is personal experience. It almost seems to me, as I'm listening to you, it's like you're blending these two to try to reach a modern-day audience, right, but still grounding it in, in St. Thomas. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, you know, th- so I, I don't make too many arguments from, from personal or religious experience, but mm-hmm. I do say a few things in, in their favor throughout the book. And one is that it, it is true that the vast majority of people have this sort of natural belief in a higher power, in God, mm-hmm. in a world that is, we might say, teleological order, that is well-structured, there's intentionality behind it, or something mind-like. This is a very natural belief for us. And so I count that as actually as a data point that needs to be mm-hmm. explained. And I and then I just say, well, what worldview better predicts that we'll have this sort of experience? Is it the theistic one, or is it the naturalistic one? And right on its face, I think it's obvious that it's the theistic one that better anticipates a worldview where we have this sort of natural, naturally occasioned belief in this higher power or higher order. Naturalism does not have a good explanation for that. So that's how I would begin to situate the the argument from personal or religious experience within the context of my book. Patrick Flynn, thank you so much for uh, for speaking with us. We're going to talk with you more on the other side of the break if you're okay with it. You're listening to Real Presence Live. We're with Patrick Flynn, the best argument for God. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. What if you could earn a degree that offers the best of both worlds, an MBA and a master's degree in philosophy? The University of Mary offers one degree that combines world-class business training with a careful study of life's deepest questions through their combined MBA, MA, and philosophy program. By earning one degree in both philosophy and business online, you will rigorously engage the big ideas needed to address professional challenges. Visit catholicprofessional.life. Have you ever worried about someone's salvation, especially one who died by suicide? I'm Father Chris Alar. Sometimes the state of their soul seems to cause us fear for their eternal fate. 
They die in what seems to be a hopeless state of sin and unrepentance. However, Jesus says in 1698 of the Diary of St. Faustina that what looks hopeless to us is in fact not so. He says that many times the soul illuminated by a ray of his final grace turns to him in the last moment to receive complete forgiveness of all sin and punishment, although we see no external signs of this. Wow! We can see why Jesus said that divine mercy is mankind's last hope of salvation. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. Hi, this is Dr. Ryan Sappo from Lumen Vision in Fargo. The American Academy of Optometry recommends that all children receive eye exams every two years, beginning at six months old. As one of North Dakota's only fellowship-certified pediatric optometrists, it is my mission to ensure that children are screened for preventable eye conditions like lazy eyes, cataracts, and eye turns. Lumen Vision offers eye exams for children and adults, and you don't need vision insurance to book an appointment. You can schedule your appointment online at www.lumen.com. Vision. Lumen Vision is a proud sponsor of Real Presence Radio. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Ryan Sappo here with Tim Mosier in the Fargo Studios, downtown Fargo. Um, we're on the phone with Patrick Flynn, and uh, he's the author of The Best Argument for God. Patrick, over the break, I learned a new word, and I want you to unpack it with me, because uh, I, I learned that uh, the, the question we're going to ask you is, can God be falsified? I had never heard that word before in terms of philosophy, so I, I would love for you to explain it and walk us through what that means. Yeah, so the principle of falsification, some people think that this is, this is a necessary principle, at least for scientific theories, right? That if your theory can't be falsified, then it shouldn't be counted as a scientific theory. So what's an example of this? Well, uh, for example, if we have a theory that all swans are, are white, it could be falsified through an empirical counterexample, right? We come across a black swan, so we know that that, that theory is, is false. So it seems, it seems very plausible, but people might be interested to know that this is actually a point of very hot debate among philosophers of science, and there's there's many scientific theories it's, where it's not clear that they actually could be falsified, but moreover, it's not like we always adjudicate between scientific theories through this principle of falsification. In fact, what, what's uh, often used increasingly more is just inference to the best explanation or abductive reasoning, and this is where we just, we select one theory over another, not because another theory has been falsified, but we see that one theory just explains more of the data more comprehensively than another theory. So the, the idea is that although the principle of falsification is uh, perhaps is useful, it's certainly not necessary even within the scientific domain, and it's absolutely not necessary for knowledge in general, and I'll give you a quick example. There's many things uh, that we not just think we can know, but absolutely do know that can't be falsified. And here's a simple one. Uh, something exists. Just think about that for a minute. That something exists is something that we are having an immediate experience of, but it can't possibly be falsified. Because if nothing were to exist, there'd be no one to observe that counterexample, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> here's, 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 I mean, that's an Im- immediately obvious example of something that we know, I would argue with absolute certainty, as true that cannot be falsified. So this, this, whatever else this principle is, it's certainly not the end-all, be-all of adjudicating uh, uh, different theories or, or claims to knowledge. That being said, um, 
it doesn't mean that that God can't be falsified just because God is an, an empirical physical entity. And um, in fact, many philosophers think think that God can be falsified. And this this brings you into various debates within philosophy religion, where certain philosophers will argue against God precisely because of some aspect of reality. And the most common one is suffering and evil. Many philosophers will say that suffering and evil is either strictly incompatible with the God of classical theism is perfectly good, or it counts as very strong evidence against him. Uh, both of these are, are to, to various degrees, claims of falsification. Now, I don't think they're good ones. I think that there are very adequate responses from the theists that we can get into if we want uh, about how God is quite compatible with the suffering and evil in this world. But just that, just the problem of evil in general is an example where uh, many people are thinking that God is something that is susceptible, if not to outright falsification, at least at least he could be evidenced against, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for unpacking that for me. I, I think that was really helpful for our listeners, too. Absolutely. Say, Patrick, another question for you here, too. Um, you know, we know that through natural reason, human beings can know there is a God, right? Um, maybe, do you, do you address that all in the book? And then do you, I assume, do something about bringing us to a Christian God then as well? Do you do that at all in the book? Yes, I do. So the, the book, again, is, is mostly a book making the case for what's called classical theism, uh, a very traditional understanding of God. And I argue that just from the philosophical armchair, with, with reason working at its best, we can argue to a robust monotheism, where there is not just a God, but the God, an in-principle, unique entity that could not be have multiple instantiations. There's just, there's just one God, and that's it. I claim that that is, can be determined apart from Revelation— and that's really what natural theology means. If people aren't familiar with that term, natural theology is just really using the tools of philosophy to try and reach a theological conclusion, but not relying on anything that we take as actually revealed from God. Now, the question uh, I believe that you're asking is, what is the link from there to Christianity or Catholicism? And I believe that there, there is a link, uh, but uh, that philosophy can take us uh, part of the way, but not all of the way. So what I argue in the book is that when we think about God, and we think about God well, there's certain things that we can anticipate from the classical theistic perspective. So God is not just pure being, but God is also pure goodness, because at least in the, in the traditional school of thought, goodness and being are actually really the same thing just considered under different aspects, that all goodness is just being considered under the aspect of desirability. So if you have this understanding of God where God is not just uh, perfect being but perfect goodness— you might ask, well, why would God create anything at all? If God is just the kind of supreme being, God is perfectly good, there's nothing that can make God any better. And the traditional answer to this is that there's really two ways of enjoying one's own goodness. You can just sort of rest in it, or you can share it. And the traditional insight of, of classical theists is that that is really God's impulse for creation. It's a sheer act of gratuity. It's sheer gift that God not only wants to bring other things into existence because it's good, it's good for them, but because God is so good, he doesn't want to just bring them into existence, he wants to unite them to himself. That communion with the Godhead is the highest possible sort of manifestation of being or existence. However, there's a little hiccup, and that is that not everything can sort of commune with God because not everything is a person. Uh, so rocks are sort of out of luck. They're just unconscious <laughs> entities. Like, how could they kind of come into this wonderful union with God? And again, one of the insights I think has been unfortunately lost in the Christian tradition is that God can create something really cool. God can create beings that are sort of fusions, if you will, between the lower material entities and the highest spiritual realm. And that's us. 
that's the human being, right? We contain within us all the elements and powers of the, of the lower chain of being, you know, the, the sort of uh, mineral life, if, not life, but the mineral realm, the sentient, uh, you know, realm, animals, also the just, uh, plants and stuff like that. But then we also kind of reach up and kiss that angelic realm of, pu- of pure intellect and will. So we really are, when you think about it, a sort of microcosm within the macrocosm of creation. And that if God creates us and sort of pulls us or invites us into union with him in interpersonal love, uh, he's really pulling all of creation along for the ride. And I think that's just a really cool, extremely beautiful and befitting story. And it's just a sort of story we should expect if the classical theistic picture is true. However, uh, something seems to have gone wrong in this world, right? For Christians, we have the doctrine of original sin, but that something kind of went screwy was not you know, something that was just known to Christians through Revelation. You know, the, the pagan thinkers had this insight as well. Plato as well just thought, like, yeah, something seems to have gone wrong here, right? Right? Like, something's messed up. Mm-hmm. And if you, if, you, if you take that as well as sort of a, a basic uh, data point, well, then you can also anticipate that God is probably going to do something to fix it, right? To make things right. And so what I argue in the book is that this sets a, a sort of general anticipation for something like the Incarnation and atonement. That because something went wrong in the realm of free creatures, right, which includes not just us, but the higher spiritual entities as well, the angels and demons, that God is going to do something, because God is so good, to restore the natural order, and to make, and to like, make things right again. And not just make things right again, but to make them even better than they were originally. And that, of course, is exactly what the Christian and Catholic story is. It is the story of the Incarnation and Atonement, that it's God's grand rescue mission mission uh, within a natural order that contingently failed because of the choices that we as finite uh, free beings made. So ultimately my claim, that, there's a lot of details to this, but my claim is that while philosophy cannot prove Christianity, good philosophy can help to anticipate it, and it's sort of uh, a matter of, hey, if the, if the shoe or slipper fits, kind of thing. There's a great befittingness here that if you're on board with this philosophical picture of God, it should strongly open you up to the claims of revealed religion that we find within the Christian tradition, if that makes sense. It does, Patrick. Thanks for talking with Patrick Flynn, author of Best Argument for God. Can't help but think about St. Thomas Aquinas. Oh, happy fault that gained for us such a great Savior. Or as Scott Hahn would say, the trampoline effect, right? We fell, but we're bouncing higher than we were before because of Christ. I love that. That, That's wonderful. Mm. And, yeah, and that's right. That was always the traditional insight between why does God allow the evil? Not that God positively wills the evil, but he will permit it, because he always governs things according to their nature. We're finite and fallibly free beings that can make moral miscalculations, but he permits it because God knows that he can draw even greater goods from the evil that we introduce into the world. And I think the Christian story shows the most uh, beautiful and obvious example of how that's being done today, not just throughout history. Mm. Patrick, we're seeing a lot of talk about, um, in, in especially in your world, the, the the multiverse theory. And and before we talk about like how can we respond to that, or is the multiverse theory incompatible with God? Like, I think we should unpack what multiverse theory is, and then I'd love to hear like what the Christian response is, or what your response would be in in your book uh, to yeah. that. Yeah, good. It's it's a difficult topic to get into because the the as always stuff on the popular level is often significantly distorted from what's actually being proposed at the at the professional or academic level. So it's really multiverse theories, and they range from just wild, broad philosophical speculations to actually a, a, attempted work out 
physical theories. But the general idea is this, is that, that um, what's, what, is, what is sometimes motivating the multiverse? Well, what sometimes is motivating the multiverse is this sort, sort of this recent, uh, fairly recent discovery in modern cosmology and astrophysics that the universe appears to be fine-tuned through the emergence of interactive intelligent life. And that means there are certain constants and quantities uh, related to the laws of nature that just seem to be highly arbitrary but extremely specified, that they really could have been otherwise, and that sort of within the vast range of where these sort of uh, specifications could have fallen, it would have made the emergence of life ex- not just improbable but impossible. In many cases, uh, chemistry wouldn't have happened or the universe would have just kind of collapsed back in on itself. And we're talking about things like this, um, the gravitational constant or the uh, strong nuclear force or stuff like this. They just, they just seem to be extremely dialed in with an unbelievable amount of precision, and there's nothing sort of necessary about this. They could have kind of been uh, been otherwise along an enormous range of possibilities, but yet they fall right where they need to for interactive intelligent life to be possible. Now, of course, the kind of on-the-face case of this is it seems like, wow, there's sort of, a, as a former, a former atheistic physicist once said, Fred Hoyle, it seems like a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. That's sort of the very intuitive read of this. Now, I actually think that's the ultimately correct explanation. But for people who don't like that theistic explanation, this is where the multiverse comes in. Now, the multiverse might mean many universes or just a a larger and far more complex uh, single universe. But the the idea is is if you have this sort of universe generator that spits out an infinite number of universes, broadly speaking, well, then it's just inevitable that you're going to wind up with, with a universe like ours, right? If you, just, if you just take an infinite number of chances at something, you'll eventually kind of get one of these universes that's just extremely lucky, lucky in terms of life. And as it happens, we just wind up in that universe. So that's some of the motivation behind it, and I'm sure we can talk about how to respond to it as a theist after the break. Well, yeah, well, Patrick, thank you again so much for being with us. The book is The Best Argument for God. You can get it at Sophia Press. Go online and Google it. Patrick, that's all the time we have for you today. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Well, hey, real quick, there is a good response to the multiverse theory. Uh, there's multiple responses. I go through them in the book. Uh, sorry I ran out of time, but uh, the theists need not worry about uh, the multiverses being in, at all incompatible or in tension with the God hypothesis. Good. That's the short good. story. Thank I, you, I, I, can, I can sleep tonight. I appreciate That's that. Good. Thanks so much. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll be talking with Carol Kling about Rachel's Vineyard. You're listening to Real Presence Live. We'll be back right after this. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. Did you know you can listen to the RPR Network when you're on the go? Just search for Real Presence Radio in your app store. Listen live to any station across the network at any time, so you can stay connected to your local community from wherever you are. Plus, if you miss a program, the Real Presence Radio app is your one-stop shop for local and national podcasts, including our signature show, Real Presence Live. The Real Presence Radio app, with you every step of your faith journey. Download it today and see what you've been missing. Good day to every one of you who are listening to Real Presence Radio. This is Father Wilhelm. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Fargo, and I'm assigned at St. Joseph's Catholic Church. And one of the things that I have found in my assignment is that I wanted to become more friendly to get to know St. Joseph more. And one of the things in just in Joseph's name, J-O-S-E-P-H, if you take that name, Joseph is just. Oh, that he's obedient. S, that he was silent. 
E, that he's an example. P, that he was a parent, the parent, the foster parent of Jesus, and H, husband of Mary. What a wonderful thing to imitate this good, holy man that the Father in heaven chose for his foster father here on earth. And so, have a devotion to St. Joseph. Come to know him. Come to know his intercession as he brings us and leads us always ever more closely in a relationship with the Holy Family. Did you know you can listen to Real Presence live anytime on any podcast platform? Just search for Real Presence Radio on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and on the Real Presence Radio website. Then subscribe so you don't miss any future shows. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating so other people can find us as well. Real Presence Radio, your family of faith and hope.